Hey friends, my name is Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, I chat with Jeremy Pierre and Greg Wilson about their book, When Home Hurts, a guide for responding wisely to domestic abuse in your church. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Now, before we get started, let me introduce you to our two guests. Jeremy Pierre is Lawrence and Charlotte Hoover Professor of Biblical Counseling and Department Chair at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is the author of The Dynamic Heart and Daily Life, co-author of The Pastor and Counseling, and staff pastor at Clifton Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Greg Wilson is a licensed professional counselor and leads Soul Care Associates, a counseling and consulting practice in Texas. His practice areas include counseling victims and perpetrators of domestic abuse and consulting with leaders of churches and other organizations on adopting best practices for care. Hey, good morning, Jeremy and Greg. Thank you both so much for joining me for the show today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having us. I am so excited for the chance to talk to both of you, not just one or the other, but both on this really helpful book that you guys have recently published called When Home Hurts, A Guide for Responding Wisely to Domestic Abuse in Your Church. But before we get too far in our conversation, I would love maybe Jeremy and then Greg to um, have each of you spend a few minutes to share about why you wanted to write a book on this topic. Yeah, well, I'm happy to start because the book sort of started with me and I needed a Greg to write that book. And I didn't know it was Greg that I needed uh, for a long time. Basically, uh, it has always bothered me that this goes on within conservative circles, this being domestic abuse. I, I was aware of it just because my family, not my immediate family, but some extended family was involved in a really tragic situation of domestic abuse. I mentioned it a little bit in the preface. Thankfully, our church responded well, but but I didn't see sort of a broad awareness of that amidst churches as I've sort of even been trained to be a pastor, grown in those things. And I really thought it needed to be written. But I also knew that I didn't have all the expertise I needed in terms of the experience of domestic abuse. So again, I I knew it from the inside in terms of a unique situation, but in terms of the sort of the comprehensive knowledge of what actually goes on. So I dug into scripture because that's the framework by which we approach all experiences of life. And I, I was building my framework, but It wasn't until I found Greg that I found somebody who had a similarly biblical mindset, who also had banked thousands of hours of experience counseling victims of abuse as well as abusers. And we were like-minded and friends enough to actually write a book together. So we, we basically wrote it so that a church, church leadership knows how to respond well wisely, rightly, when there are disclosures of abuse, because there's just so many ways to respond in sometimes a well-meaning, but a poor way. So that's the main reason as I would see it. 
Yeah, and and I was um, also running into a lot of this topic, both in my counseling practice. So I have a private counseling practice here, as well as in my church and other churches that were represented by people that were in my counseling practice. And and uh, I do a lot of marriage counseling. I do a lot of family counseling in my practice. And I usually tell people that when you see a lot of couples and a lot of families, you know the two big ways uh, a lot of times that things can go really bad is uh, infidelity and abuse, right? And so abuse is just something that would come up where I would be seeing a couple and then I would realize, okay, really what's happening here is that this is an abusive relationship and really this shouldn't be marriage counseling at this point. This should be individual counseling for each of the parties. And then I we also had some uh, situations that came up in my church as I was walking with the the church leaders. I try to do that as often as I can. And in the course of working with my church and other churches, I just realized that something like this kind of book, a guide, just some basic helps in terms of like, you know, you start here, this is what you're thinking about. Some of the things I'm sure we'll walk through in the in in our time together. I just felt like that would be really helpful for my own church. And for the other churches that I was working with, as I saw people in my counseling practice from those churches. Well, Jeremy, in the beginning of the book, you encourage us to view ourselves as an agent of God's love. Can you clarify what you and Greg mean by that and what it might look like to be an agent of God's love in a domestic abuse situation? Yeah. So basically, that's sort of the theological framework of the entire book. And that's, it's a theology and an anthropology, which just means our knowledge of God and our knowledge of people. So here's what I mean by that. God's chief design for people is that they love, that they love him with all their heart, soul, mind and strength, and that they love others as themselves. We know this from uh, the words of Jesus. And so all relational exchanges need to happen according to that chief design purpose. We end up applying that to what makes abuse so wrong. But we wanted to pay attention to the role of the individual who's picking up that book. And and just frankly, abuse situations are scary and sticky and confusing and not my business in that sense. And we wanted to give people the theological reason why they need to lean in, especially as the church, the community of God that's told to love one another out of sincerity and prefer one another and to sort of overflow in this self-sacrificing love that prefers others' interests to one's own. That requires us to not bank on our own sense of sympathy to reach out and help in a situation like this, but you're an agent of God's love and an agent is someone who acts on behalf of another. And so if you're an agent of God's love, that means love isn't an option here. And love has to take a very specific and wise form in these situations. So that's why we tried to frame it that way. We, we really did try to carefully avoid, and I think we successfully avoided this being a book that's framed as like a shame on you church, you stink at everything kind of book. I don't think those are helpful. I don't think it's going to inspire anyone to actually take the right kind of actions on behalf of victims to simply just shame everybody for the failures that they've had. So we hope that it positively frames it in light of our design. Well, I'm going to turn it over to you, Greg. We have spoken about various aspects of domestic abuse on this podcast, on some 
Hope and Help Facebook Lives we did in 2020. And so our audience, if they've been listening for a while, are are somewhat probably familiar with with those aspects. Um, And I'm going to go ahead and link to those resources in these podcast show notes. So if you are interested in in hearing from some of the other conversations we've had, you can have the opportunity to access those easily as well. But in case someone listening is unfamiliar, do you mind offering a general definition of what domestic abuse is and how we might understand it biblically? Uh, Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, you know, we talk in chapter two of the book about the dynamics of abuse, and we offer a definition that basically says that abuse happens when a person in a position of greater influence uses their personal capacities, his personal capacities, to diminish the personal capacities of other people under his influence in order to control them, right? So there is this aspect of influence sometimes you know when you're in some of the other definitions that have probably been offered on your shows sometimes it's talked about power or authority or whatever but we use the word influence but where there is some kind of an imbalance in that um, and the person with the greater influence authority power lords it over that's what uh, jesus said you know when he was referring to the gentiles talking to uh, james and john Uh, about this concept, those under his influence or authority to control them, right? And so that's the way that we have chosen to uh, define it. And in in general, most of the time, in most of the definitions that you see, that's what you're going to find is uh, an emphasis on some kind of an imbalance between the two parties of influence, power, authority, and then this effort to control, usually to get what the other person wants, right? So the other person is essentially getting what they want by using their personal capacities to uh, diminish the personal capacities of the other person. So that's actually very explicitly theological, even in terms of what I, how, it, how we started this conversation, right? Because personal capacities are given to us as image bearers of God. So I have God-like capacities to use either according to his chief design or for other purposes. And so again, the chief design is love. And we know that love happens in this general calling for humanity to have dominion over the world. Now, when we say the word dominion, that's like, oh no, that sounds sort of like the trappings of abuse, but no. Dominion was supposed to be spreading the love of God, the character of God around the the world, bringing order to what, what surrounds them in light of God's character. So I'm an agent of the unseen God in a seen world. And so what abuse is, is me using or, 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 or someone with some influence and capacity using those capacities, my hands, my mouth, my money, my whatever capacities that I have to constrain that in someone else so that they will bend to my will and my purposes and not God's. And so what Greg just described there is core to the theology of who we are as people. 
I also too really appreciated in this book that you help us think carefully about terminology, Greg, um, particularly when it comes to an issue that is so nuanced and complex. So as people helpers, why is it important for us to be aware of just some of the common terms used in domestic abuse situations? Maybe, you know, how can some of these common terms be helpful, but then also how can sometimes they be unhelpful? Yeah, that's a great question and is often one of the ways I think where the church could improve the way that we respond to these situations. Even the word abuse itself, right? While we don't shy away from that word, we have it on the cover of the book. But I would argue and have, you know, right here in my counseling office, if I'm caring for a man who has been accused of this or who is beginning to see this in his own life and he's concerned about that word it has potentially maybe even some legal implications you know in his mind that he doesn't think are necessarily appropriate for what he's doing uh, I'm fine with bringing in other words uh, harsh for example right so Colossians 3 says husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them right and so um, if I'm able to help him see that the behavior that he is exhibiting towards his wife is harsh, and he's more comfortable using that word, I'm fine using that word. If we call these behaviors destructive behaviors or cruel behaviors or hurtful behaviors, all of those things are things that are still in keeping with our definition of using personal capacities to diminish the personal capacities of another person. Again, that's part of the reason that we wanted to use the words that we uh, used very carefully. And I relied a lot on Jeremy uh, because he is uh, a great uh, wordsmith and uh, he is really nuanced in his use of words. And he has been very helpful to me in mm -hmm. thinking through that. But yeah, we, we did want to uh, try to use some terms, some different kinds of terms maybe than other people have used in this work, not because there's anything wrong with those terms, but to just help people to see that you know there are other ways of looking at this dynamic and regardless of what you call it at the end of the day it's an ungodly dynamic and something that the lord wants to change right and so that's where we tried to be a, a little bit like you said nuanced i think that that's a good word in um, our use of of terminology it's important for them to know words uh like victim and survivor. I think we'll talk about that later. And even we introduced a, a word called overcomer. Um, and we can talk about all that. But at the end of the day, it's also important that they realize that these are two image bearers of God that we're talking about, and that there are a lot of ways to describe this very complex dynamic that can sometimes help both the church and the people helpers, as well as those who are caught up in the dynamic, understand what's going on better than just like throwing out a word. What I love about Greg's answer there is that that's exactly how it falls out in ministry situations. If your loyalty is to force a certain word or certain terminology into the situation, you, you're probably going to lose the, the situation and it'll get out of hand. Whereas if you're going for the concept, you're going for what's the idea behind the word that I think is important here, that's where you actually gain the most traction with people. And so, you know, we, again, we don't avoid the word abuse when we think it's a legitimate use and it needs to be used in order to wake somebody up to the seriousness of what's going on. But we also don't lead out with that typically 
because we want actually there to be an ownership of what actually is occurring and what actually is happening. That's both as we're talking to the abuser, as we're talking to the victim of abuse, and as we're talking to the church about what's occurring. You want to help people to get the heart of God from Scripture in terms of what they're seeing and not just do the human tendency we all have, right? to just listen for key words. And then we categorize the person based on the words that they're saying, and we either dismiss them or completely embrace them. And that's not actually going to help anybody. After there has been a disclosure of abuse in our church community, what are some practical next steps that we as people helpers can take to approach and even engage the victimized spouse? Well, when you're approaching a victim, you do have to be mindful of how this was disclosed to you, okay? So did the victim herself approach you, or did maybe a concerned friend approach you about the victim? And even there, there's nuance, right? Because the concerned friend might be, I'm coming to tell you about this, but she doesn't know I'm telling you about this. Or it might be, I'm coming to tell you about this because she finally gave me permission to tell you about this. So you just have to pay attention to those dynamics in terms of just recognize what is and then make your plan. But generally speaking, the plan should involve direct conversation with the victim, but it should be done carefully and with her input as to what is sort of a safe form of communication. So if the friend is approaching you, then you just want to pass along to the friend nothing that's going to sort of disclose information she shouldn't have. But you can say to her, hey, listen, have her contact me in whatever way she feels safest, in whatever way that we can have a conversation where you can communicate to her. I will be very careful with the information she shares me. I will receive the information. I'm not going to sort of reject and then go tattle to her husband. I am going to take this seriously. That's the main thing you want that friend to convey. Then the uh, wife can decide what's the safest form of contact. Now, if she's the one who approached you, then she at least ostensibly has thought that through to some degree, but maybe not. So you, you want to continue to say, okay, what is the safest way? If, if you're highly concerned that if your husband finds out that you're talking, you're going to be in more danger then what are ways that we can have some sort of natural overlap that wouldn't raise his suspicions while I just get a lay of the land on this? So that's a practical way in terms of the initial disclosure of abuse. I think it really helps if the context of that is a church culture. We talk about this towards the end of the book, is a church culture where people know that the pastors are informed about this situation and concerned about abuse and injustice going on within the families of their church. And they just generally have an approachability about them. I have found it just makes a huge difference. Yeah. And what I would add to that, uh, and, and what I would definitely want someone to, um, take away from the, the chapter that chapter where we talk about the initial approach to the the spouse who is the victim and Jeremy already kind of alluded to it in terms of the language that we would use and the way that we would set this up her safety is the is the paramount thing right so uh, we want to make sure that everything that we do in responding to this is to help her uh, stay safe, right? Because even if it is those other forms of abuse that you alluded to, 
uh, Christine, you're right. I mean, there's emotional abuse and verbal abuse and financial abuse and spiritual abuse. And those aren't necessarily unsafe from a physical perspective, at least initially. We do know that abuse can escalate and that they it, it can become an unsafe situation in a physical sense. And we also know that there is a kind of unsafety when you're exposed to constant verbal abuse and emotional abuse and gaslighting and those kinds of things that we also need to be concerned about. And so safety is the primary concern and everything that we tried to say in uh, chapter four of the book, when we're talking about how we approach the victim in that situation keeps her safety first and foremost in our mind. So Greg, along the same lines in the next chapter, you also offer some practical next steps we can take to confront the offending spouse. But first, you offer a warning about two ditches that people helpers will want to avoid as we take those next steps down that difficult path. So I guess there's this question is a two-part question. Maybe first, if you talk just real briefly about those two ditches that we need to be mindful of, and then move into a couple of practical next steps that we can take in that situation. Certainly. So the ditches, and and I think that these are great ditches to consider in counseling in general, but especially in uh, cases that the particular type of hardened sin that we're talking about when we're talking about domestic abuse, our cynicism on the one hand, and naivete on the other hand, right? Let me explain those. So cynicism is the idea that, um, and, and we all know this, all of us have been involved in counseling situations and pastoral ministry situations where we can just begin to think, man, the pervasive effects of sin in this person's life have hardened them to the point that it's sometimes it's almost hard to see them as a human being. It's almost hard to see them as an image bearer of God, or if they are redeemed, to see them as a, a child of God. And yet we know biblically that's what they are. First and foremost, this person is an image bearer of God. They're not a monster, uh, as we try to explain in other parts of the book. Uh, the behavior might be monstrous, right? But that's an important distinction that we need to make in our mind in order to really be able to help this person. And so we don't want to despise the abuser in this situation as a monster or someone who is like less than human and uh, irredeemable, if I can use that term. But the other ditch is naivete. We also don't want to in any way diminish the, like I said, the particular type of uh, sin, uh, the particular type of egregious sin that Jeremy and I argue in this book that abuse is. And we know that one of the things that is true of abusive persons is that often they come off with other people as very believable, as very convincing, as very well put together. And so we can hear the wife's story, the wife's account of some of the things that happen. And then eventually, and I'll talk about this in a second, we talk about practical steps. When we're talking to the abuser, we can hear his side and his side can sound very convincing. And his side can uh, you know, make us think, Wow, I, I'm really glad I talked to this guy. I had this situation all wrong. I, you know, I mean, clearly she's the person who's abusive and not him, right? And so we don't want to fall victim to naivete either. We want to know that part of the effect, part of the hardening effect 
of an abuser's, an abusive person's sin is that they often do minimize and deny and blame their sin on other people. And so we have to be aware of that. And again, I would argue, I think that those twin ditches, I think that might have been Jeremy's concept, uh, you know, when we we're writing the book, but I think it's a, a great one, is applicable to all kinds of counseling situations outside of abuse. I, I think about it often. I have a, a visual in my mind of those two ditches and just trying to stay on the road and avoid either one of those. We don't want to become cynical because at that point, we really begin to wonder if this person can change at all. And by the way, in a lot of the secular literature, that is what is said about abusive people is that they are incapable of change. They can't change. And we say, hey, it is going to be hard uh, because again, this is a different type of sin and it's, it's a hardened type of sin, but we we do believe that change is possible. Obviously, as believers uh, with the Holy Spirit, we believe that change is always possible, and so we want to hold that out without becoming naive. Jeremy, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I want to apply that really good framework you just walked us through to the idea of who to believe. Do you believe the victim or do you be, believe the, uh, the one accused of abuse in a situation where their stories aren't lining up? And I think, I think, Greg, those those two ditches to avoid apply there too, because you don't want to be really cynical or really naive in either situation when you're receiving an initial disclosure and then when you're receiving kind of the counter narrative, perhaps, from an abuser. And the good news for us is the truth will out. What I mean by that is through a process of carefully listening and hearing the, the consistency or lack of consistency, the gaps for having this additional information as a framework to understand some of the subtle dynamics that abuse can often take. I think over time, what's going to happen is that you're going to be able to see things as a counselor that you wouldn't have been able to see just from one conversation. So here's what I'm saying. You can't kind of have make a gut call about whether you really like this guy that you're confronting. Okay. You, you, you really like him. He sounds believable. It sounds reasonable. It sounds like this was just a misunderstanding. It's sort of the temptation that you might have. But the reason we wrote this book is to give you insight into the dynamics that those take. So that's to prevent you from being naive in that sense. You also don't want to be cynical in the wrong sense, even in it, as you're sort of parsing through stuff, because then if you draw your conclusion just because, oh, I have a gut feel that this guy's an abuser, you're actually not going to end up helping the victim all that much because it's not from careful knowledge. So I guess what I want to encourage our hearers to think about is that it's not going to be comfortably concludable at the beginning. Like you're not going to have a conclusion nicely, neatly wrapped up in two conversations. Your job is to receive what the victim is saying, take it very seriously because she knows better than you do what's going on in that house. It's most likely that if she took the initiative to disclose something, then something harmful is going on. And again, you're not concluding what level of harm that is. You're not putting labels on it of, oh, oh this is this. I know this is going to be abuse. So you're, you're saying that in the first conversation with the abuser. We're not saying that. But we are saying is 
we have to recognize our tendency to want something nice, clean, neat, that we can categorize very early in the process. And that actually doesn't help anybody. Again, keeping in mind that the safety of the victim is our foremost concern. Uh, we don't want to rush too quickly to confronting a perpetrator. I think that that is a lot of times, again, in our in the church, it is a well-intentioned desire to very quickly come along uh, to that uh, abusive person, say, we need to call him into the room with the elders or the pastors or whatever. We need to confront him on this. We want to make sure that the victim is in a safe place, has a safety plan, uh, knows what she's going to do once the, once the perpetrator is confronted, because often abusive people, when they are confronted with their sin, don't respond very well. And of course, those of us who are confronting him are not the ones who are going to have to live with him at home when he gets home from this meeting, right? It's going to be that victim spouse and potentially the children as well in that home. And so we have to recognize that confronting such a person can lead to further abusive behavior, can lead to retaliation. And so we have to think about that very clearly and very thoughtfully and have uh, some kind of a plan for how that's going to fall out. We also need to make sure that we are communicating to the victim, okay, you know, today's the day we're planning on meeting with your husband. Are you still good with, these are the things we're thinking about talking to him about, you know, and you, you have a list, we'll talk, you know, we uh, there's the uh, financial abuse that we talked about and the verbal abuse that we talked about and the emotional abuse that we talked about. And then there's that time that he punched a hole in the wall and she might react and say, you know what? I'm still not really comfortable with you talking about if he knows that I told you guys about him punching the wall, he's going to get very, very angry. So please, you know, don't bring that up. Right. And so we, any confrontation that we have with the abusive individual, we get the advice and consent of the victim on the things that, that we're going to talk about. Because uh, again, uh, it is that person's safety that is our foremost concern. And to a certain extent, we are putting it at risk. Even, even when that person has said, yes, I know that he needs to be confronted about this. I'm ready for this. We have a safety plan. There's still the victims that I've worked with in these situations are still very nervous when that's happening. They realize that they could get the really hard back end of that when, when that person gets home or in the next conversation or the next text message or whatever after that confrontation. So we just need to be very careful and we need to have an actionable plan. So, you know, we talk about leaving if it's not that first meeting, because again, these meetings hardly ever flow in just like a nice, neat, you know, structure. But if it's not that first meeting that in an early meeting, there is some kind of an accountability plan. Okay. So these are the things that we want you to do if you're um, interested in change. And, and if you're uh, honestly, if you're interested in us not continuing even to the next step of church discipline or like whatever that is in the church, these are the things that we need for you to do and have accountability uh, around certain things and be seeing a counselor and potentially being involved in some kind of group program. And all those things are things that would be a part of that accountability program. So we talk a lot more about all of that, obviously, in the book, but that in just in general, in terms of, of next steps. One of you just in that answer brought up the topic of children 
being in the home. And so I really appreciate that you do address this in the book, not only children, you, you also, you know, open that up to include any particular family members that may be living under the same roof. But Jeremy, I appreciate that you encourage people helpers to consider, you know, that there is collateral damage that occurs when home hurts like this, and, and particularly when children are involved. And so while this is certainly a heartbreaking reality, you do offer some what I thought was really helpful encouragements regarding how we might help children to process what is taking place in their home. And you write, quote, Christians who surround the family can model the good design of God in their relationships. This can do a world of good to a child whose home is full of lies. Do you mind sharing a bit about how people helpers can minister to the children involved? Absolutely. So just to be clear, we're not talking about children getting abused in this que- in this book, nor in the, the question that you just asked. When children are abused, that changes the reporting structures and it changes what the decisions you would make in terms of how an abuser is addressed and where the kids go in the home and things like that. I just wanted to be super clear. If you are even have a reasonable suspicion that a child is being directly abused, that needs to be reported to authorities. But this situation we're talking about, the wife is being abused and the children are just present in the home and they are aware of it and and they're observing it. So practically, what are ways that you can encourage them and model them? Well, you have to think carefully about what type of relationship you have with the children and thus what access you have, right? It has to obviously be appropriate to sort of the level of relationship that there is. So it might take the form of a of a conversation with the mom present. It might take the form of a letter that you could write to them. It might take different communicative forms depending in the process, but what you want to express are a couple really important ideas. I think, first of all, you want to acknowledge the wrongness of what they're observing. This is not like God. This is not God's design for the family. And the sadness and the consternation that you feel is a right response. So, so you're expressing that it's not right. You're affirming them in whatever sort of fears or even anger that they feel at that, the concern and love they have for their mom. You're affirming that. Because again, what you're doing is you're giving a, a different story, a different narrative than what they're seeing displayed there. I think you also want to affirm, hey, you can still love your daddy here. And in fact, loving, we're not asked, nobody's hating your daddy. We love your daddy. And in fact, we show him love by helping him see God's way. Because if he continues to go down his own way, that's really to his harm and to his destruction. So we, I've just found that in my ministry, that's an important aspect of it too, because the child feels really confused because, well, they love mommy and they also love daddy. And if they think that you hate daddy, there's just going to be this, their, their, their soul's going to be torn. They're going to think they have to take sides. But what you're trying to do is have them side with what's true in God's eyes and not necessarily sort of hate one spouse or the other. You, you're doing this with a wife initially. We didn't get into it in this conversation, but we do in the book. Oftentimes you have to convince the wife, like, look, loving your husband actually is not allowing him to continue this illusion that this is a good thing that he should get away with. 
that he can have a home where this goes on. This is this is ugly and offensive in the eyes of God, and it's harmful to you. Those are the, those are at least three things that I think are pretty essential to convey to a kid, whatever the communicative means is appropriate to the relationship. I think too, it's probably, and maybe I should have addressed this earlier in the conversation, but just to put it out there, and you guys do mention it in the book, you know, we are using in the context of our conversation today, you know, coming from an angle of the wife is the victim and the husband is the abuser, but you know, you acknowledge and a lot of, I think pretty much almost every conversation I've had on this podcast acknowledges the fact that that's not always the dynamic, um, that there are situations where it is the reverse. What you're looking for there is the same framework applied. It's just what are the capacities that are superior for the woman that she's using to to compel and control and diminish the capacities of her husband to be a person, to, to be able to function. So oftentimes, sometimes that is physical, but it's less about like maybe brute strength and more about sort of the threat of unexpected strikes or harm or, you know, even using weapons or things like that. But it can also be sort of social power if she's from wealth and he's not, or if she's uh, really adept socially, relationally, and has a whole network of support relationships, and then he's kind of off on his own and, and she can sort of misuse that. So, so it's the same framework. It just may be a different set of strengths versus weaknesses. And then I think the other thing we mentioned in our appendix is there is an additional maybe dynamic of shame that might be part of it for the man because, I mean, a guy getting abused by his wife has at least a layer of shame to it that's different from vice versa. And so there might be some things that you'd have to to walk through with that man regarding as well. So we do try to acknowledge that. We do have an appendix in the book for that. Greg, I'd love for you to help us think through the distinction between common domestic abuse terminology and a person's core identity. You you guys introduced it in the beginning of the book when you touch on terminology, which I really appreciated, but then you also unpack that a bit more later in the book, specifically when it comes to the terms survivor, victim, and then as you said earlier in our conversation, introducing the term overcomer, which is really the nugget where I found um, so much insight. And so can you spend a few minutes helping us think through identity and these labels and how we might put them into practice or not in these types of situations? Sure. And and already uh, you've heard uh, both of us talk about kind of a general resistance to uh, relying too much on labels. I think Jeremy and I both feel pretty strongly about that, that that can be very unhelpful. And so, but you have to also use labels when you're writing a book like this. And when you're talking, when you're talking about this dynamic, even to be able to identify the people who are caught up in the dynamic, you have to, you know, use terms and words that have particular meanings. But again, we try to do that with nuance and we try to do that in a way that is helpful for the healing process. And so, as you said, there can be, and a lot of people have written on this, the idea of how you can develop a victim mentality if you're not careful and so forth. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to talk about trauma and healing from trauma in such a way that there is hope for what the other side coming out the other side and being healed can look like. And so, and trauma basically is, again, it's a big word that really just describes the dynamic of 
when suffering overwhelms a person's ability to cope with their suffering, then what we call that is trauma. It is the damage that's done in an abusive relationship. What I have heard a lot uh, in the, the reading that I've done and in the work that I've seen is a lot of times the word gets used, the word resilience gets used, or the idea that at some point you're going to go, the progression is you were a victim and now you're a survivor. And at some point things are going to go back to the way that they were. But here's the deal. It never goes back to the way that it was, right? And if you've gone through a significant trauma, the idea of kind of bouncing back, which is the idea that's conveyed often with the term resilience, is not really the dynamic that we're trying to actually describe. The dynamic that we're actually trying to describe is that you came out the other end of this uh, traumatic situation different, but you came out, right? You came out and you were not defined by that term victim or even that term survivor. Like that's not what's defined you, but that your identity is as an image bearer of God who has overcome. There's this idea in Japanese art of kintsugi. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that concept, that type of of art, but it's like a vase or, or a vessel of some kind is shattered. And then it's put back together using gold in the, the, all the broken places, gold is used to put it back together. So the piece of art actually becomes more valuable after it is shattered and then put back together than it was previously and more beautiful. That's the idea. Uh, some people, again, some secular writers have captured this idea as what they call post-traumatic growth. But again, we wanted a biblical term because that's important to us. And so uh, we chose and, and explained in the book, I think at maybe greater length than I'm able to do here, why we felt like that was a good term biblically to use one of the main emphasis we have of that difference in the book is it's different because of the active response of the former victim rather than just a passive response. So if you even notice, there's a huge difference between a passive label and an active label. Normally, I mean, I don't want to make a blanket rule here, but normally active labels are more helpful. Okay. So survivor just means that my life didn't cease because of this. Like I survived, it's, it's more passive. Whereas overcomer is more active. And the reason we think that's helpful is because it really does emphasize this is a journey of faith. This is a journey that takes you leaning in and making effort, striving to tell yourself what's true versus the lies that have been forced upon you. To humble yourself before the Lord and cling to him to be your rock and your refuge and and to fight on your behalf rather than simply lean back and passively allow suffering to tell you who you are and tell you your story. We hope that passive versus active kind of feel to it really came through. I think that's generally true in lots of different portions of life uh, in terms of how we think about ourselves. Yeah, it's so good. And Greg, I appreciate you bringing that term. I think you said post-traumatic growth. 
Yeah, it made me think of a conversation that we had on the podcast with Curtis Solomon, and he used the term post-traumatic sanctification. And so that was a really helpful way of thinking through that. And so, uh, Jeremy, both of you guys, obviously together as co-authors, spend a good amount of time in this book addressing the need for people helpers to have an awareness of the impacts of trauma. And Greg has said some things about it so far. And you guys write that, quote, even after a victim is safe from any immediate threat from her abuser, how she responds to life will be constrained to some degree by what has happened. Maybe you guys can tag team on this question. Would you highlight some of the physical and spiritual manifestations of trauma we might observe as a result of what the victim has gone through? Trauma is a word that like is, is hot right now in the sense of everybody's using it for everything. And that actually is harmful for people who actually experience trauma, honestly. Trauma in its simplest form is about hindered ability because of severe suffering that's happened to someone. What I want to emphasize there for now is just hindered ability. It's my reactions and responses to the world, are my capacities for that are, are diminished because of the severity of the suffering or the particular form of suffering that I received. And so it's really important for us to recognize that that's a thing <laughs> that occurs, that that's part of the mysterious providence of God, allowing us to live in a sin cursed world where those external realities have an effect upon us in shaping the particular ways we respond. Now, where I get a lot, I get some pushback as I'm a, giving advice to, you know, elder boards or pastors as they're thinking through different situations is, well, I don't like trauma because it just excuses her sin and her reaction. And I said, if that's the way that we're using trauma, I agree that that's wrong. But for you to dismiss the very fact that her capacities to respond are hindered in light of what happens is not the same thing. That you're, you're conflating the mistake with the legitimate recognition that this woman is reacting this particular way because she's terrified, because she's scared. Even you, if, you're, if you have any semblance of being a good parent, you recognize this in a child that's experienced certain things. Well, guess what? We're just grown, in one sense, we're grown children, right? We, we, we always remain affected by what surrounds us. And that's that's just basic to even the assumptions of the biblical writers, right? They're always assuming human beings are affected by what happens to them. And that's actually what makes the miracle of grace so miraculous that it changes the way we respond to those things. And it does so through a process of sanctification and over time. So we talk about all that. My point for you uh, now is that being informed about the hindered abilities of someone due to the severity of their suffering is a way of loving them wisely. It's necessary, even if some people want to misuse the label of trauma as an excuse to sign off on any type of reaction or response that they want to have. Reject that, but recognize the legitimacy of that. So Greg, I don't know if you have any further thoughts. 
just to get to some of those specific effects and how they could influence how a person responds to a situation like this. So for example, if emotional abuse has happened and one of the elements of that emotional abuse is the uh, dynamic that we commonly call gaslighting, the idea where uh, this person is like actually trying to make this person doubt their version of things or their version of what happened. And and that happens in abusive situations. And a lot of times the effect of that is going to be that this person, this victim, this person who has been abused in this way may come off to church leaders or counselors or whatever as unsure of herself trauma can have an effect on memory and memory loss is one of the things that can happen in uh, PTSD. So her memory of events might not be quite as good as his memory of events. Um, And so we have to take those kinds of things into account and see that that could be the effect of trauma in this relationship rather than something that casts doubt on her believability of the the situation. So other effects are uh, just generalized anxiety, depression, questioning herself, even suicidal thoughts, uh, feeling unworthy, feeling hopeful. Have, you know, it's hard to trust people, which again, that's a dynamic that we have to pay attention to if we're a counselor or if we're a church leader, um, is that she may come across as, I don't know if I can trust you, especially think about the dynamic of, so this is a woman who has been abused by a man with a certain amount of power or influence or authority in her life. And then as a church, we think, okay, the best next step for you is to have you come into a room full of elders and pastors. Um, Generally speaking, in a lot of our churches, men who have a certain amount of power and authority and influence, right? And, And so like even recognizing, okay, an understanding of trauma, a trauma informed perspective would say, wouldn't it be better if we had uh, some women in that room, or even if we had an even balance of of elders and their wives, or pastors and their wives, just godly women in the church, home group leaders, or or, or what have you, or maybe it doesn't require a meeting with everybody. Maybe maybe you can have a selected sort of small team of people delegated with this responsibility. Things like that. You you do have to think about. Greg, you also have a chapter on caring for abusers who are trying to walk out their repentance. And I like that you say walk out repentance, indicating that it's not a merely just a one-time act of visible contrition, but rather a long, hard journey towards spirit-empowered heart change. We don't have time to go into all the particulars because we're running out of time in our conversation today, but maybe you can give people helpers an idea of what it might look like to operate in a team approach. I like how you suggested that. Um, So maybe tell us who makes up part of a wise care team and what various roles do they play in the process of helping someone move from abuser to servant? That's great. Yes. So we we have a, a diagram and a lot of pages of information on this in the book, but you do want to surround this person with a team of people. That's super important. Uh, even in the secular world, they have the idea of coordinated community response, which is really important uh, to recognize that there needs to be a, a community 
around this couple and this individual who's trying to change. And so when we're thinking about a perpetrator or an abuser in the context of the church, I would think, as I mentioned earlier, when I talked about an accountability plan, I would think that you would need to have some people who are aware, some just some men in the church, godly men in the church. It could be a pastor. It could be, again, a home group leader or someone like that who is uh, aware of the dynamics, they've gone through some kind of training, maybe they've read the book or whatever, and they're aware of the dynamics, who is just holding this person accountable. So we call that in the book, a shepherding team. That's the language that uh, Chris Moles uses for that as well. So just some people that are shepherding this person, caring for him spiritually and holding him accountable. And then some type of counseling or group program or preferably both, uh, would be great. And so that means that this person has some kind of a group program that they are submitted to where they're working on uh, their issues. And then they've got uh, an individual counselor, again, who is who understands the dynamics of abuse and is helping him to work through the particular areas of entitlement and objectification and other areas that are probably going on. And then the victim's advocate, or counselor, or sometimes it is the victim herself. Again, every situation is different. We realize, Jeremy and I had a lot of conversations about this when we're writing the book. It's like, you know, he lives in Louisville where there's a wealth of resources. I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where there's a wealth of resources. We recognize that there are some people who have the book or who, who would be getting the book who maybe don't have all the resources that we that have at our disposal. And so we wanted to make we wanted to bring the idea of team to describe it in such a way that everybody can kind of do this. So I've seen situations where it's the victim herself who is actually a part of that team, but sometimes it is her advocate if she has an advocate, which is always a great idea, or her counselor who has a release of information in the professional counseling world. We have to do those things with releases of information to be able to talk about the things that that person is seeing with the person or group leader who is working with the abuser because, and also with the shepherding team, right? Because it's important that these people be communicating with each other, that the, the people who are responsible for the primary shepherding and discipleship of this person and um, the person who is primarily responsible for counseling this person, helping them to understand the dynamics knows the things that are still going on that have been going on and potentially are still going on in the relationship so that they can wisely care for that person. So that's what we call the the team. Um, and again, it could literally be three people. It could be, you know, the person who's working with the abuser, it could be the person who's shepherding them, and it could be someone representing the victim who is aware of her perspective on things. Or it could be a lot more than that, depending on the resources of the church. But these people definitely need to be talking to each other in whatever ways that they can. Well, we've got time for one more question. So Jeremy, I'd love for you to spend just a few minutes talking about something that I've found to be unique in the book. And um, you guys included a section that guides church leaders on how to communicate with their church body when abuse has been discovered in one of the church's families. You write, quote, 
when abuse occurs in your church, the effects are not just relegated to the abuse of home. Guiding the community of faith to respond rightly is another important part of shepherding well in tragic situations like this. Would you offer some guiding principles as to how leaders can wisely communicate about such a painful issue? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the good news is in that book, we actually script things for, you know, what it, what it would look like to speak publicly, if that's helpful to folks. Okay. So uh, there's a lot of practical guidance here. If you're just asking for principles off the top of my head for the purpose of this conversation, here's a few that come to mind. First, prior to having any public conversation about this, spend the time to make sure your leadership is on the same page. They may not agree on all the terminology, but they can agree to a basic approach or the basic principles that you're going to be communicating about this. That's more than worth it. And this is how God changes and grows church leadership, okay? Because we're all on a journey too. And so I would just say the extra amount of time, instead of being frustrated that people are slow, just view it as an opportunity to continue to educate and submit our minds to scripture, to, to ask ourselves, do we share the heart of Christ? and pursue each other, make sure that leadership's on the same team there. Then when you do communicate, what we tried to script and model in the book is a complete and straightforward communication of what is without going into all the details, okay? So people don't need to know everything. It doesn't serve them. They're not part of the process of healing for these folks. But it's also true if you're too veiled about it, and you don't use words that actually define what the concern is, then you actually put uh, the victim of abuse at more risk in the, in the sense of like what people were chatter about and what they will wonder and surmise. So then, then the last principle is related to that. I really do think when you communicate publicly, you can say to the congregation, hey, you, you all might have questions or be wondering why we said X, Y, or Z in this communication. We are inviting you. Come talk to us. That It's our joy to have those conversations, but come to us. Don't talk amidst yourselves. There, there shouldn't be any sense of, oh, I knew that was because I one time saw X, Y, and Z, or I really, you know, I don't think she's probably telling the whole story because she has her own issues. That is what scripture calls gossip. That is how to not serve in this situation. So So if you want to put that positively, what we say is, look, the church really wants to help this family and the church leaders have appointed certain people on these different teams to actually help them. They need to know the information in a way that the rest of us don't. So let's not make this a topic of conversation, make it a topic of prayer. And if there's anything that we can clarify for you, you have a question on, please come directly to us. And what you've done there is you've communicated, you've shown the respect to the congregation of communicating straightforwardly about it. You've also created a situation where suddenly your culture starts to change because other people who might be being victimized, they they see how you're handling it. And that makes them potentially more comfortable with the idea of disclosing that. You also have men in there who perhaps... They're not abusive or not even close to abusive, but the tendencies and habits that are that that could lead that way, they're more aware of it and they're more prayerful about it. It just has all these positive effects when you communicate it. 
Well, I would love to just thank you both for taking the time to have this really important discussion today. I know that we have taken a good amount of time and have hardly even scratched the surface, honestly, of what you have in this book and the topic in general. I want to encourage the listeners to remember that IBCD has a wealth of resources on this topic. Um, you can access most of them for free on our website. And so I will link to all those various resources, audios, the observation videos. Those are not free, but we price them to put them within people's reach. And so lots of stuff we have available on the website. You can scroll down to the show notes, click the link there. That will take you to a page on our website that will give you access to purchase this book, When Home Hurts, A Guide for Responding Wisely to Domestic Abuse in Your Church, and to access the other uh, resources that I just mentioned. But before we go, I want to just take a few minutes to invite both of you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. And I'll have Jeremy go first and then Greg close us out. There may be someone listening today who knows a person who is living in or coming out out of a domestic abuse situation, they feel ill-equipped to be helpful, but they also don't want to stand by and do nothing at all. What would you say to encourage this listener? Yeah, I think I would say to you, be available and be receptive and let them know that. So the good news for you is you don't have to compel or convince or do anything other than make that person know that you'll receive and you care and that you will be wise. You'll, you'll do your best to be wise in how that help comes about. But sometimes a person has to know that one of their friends is willing to help months before there's actually, okay, now I'm ready. But my point to you is if that never happens, everything just gets delayed. So be available to them. That's great. And the one thing that I would say that I always say in these situations to this person is I would say, listen, it is so often we think when we are in a position to help that uh, the very first thought comes to mind is what do I say, or I don't know what to say or whatever. And I, I think I would just encourage, don't let that be your first impulse that you need to say anything. Just listen and affirm, let them know that they are loved by you and by God. And you do that just like God does with us by offering uh, that person your ear. God offers us uh, his ear. And that's one of the ways that he lets us know that uh, he loves us and cares about us. And so do that. Awesome. Well, thank you both again so much for those encouraging words and for all of the wisdom that you shared today. It was really a joy to have you on the show. And I'm thankful that this resource is out and available to help equip the local church in this specific kind of one another care. So thank you both so much. For having us. Thanks, Christine. We're, we're thankful for your ministry too. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.